Hello and welcome to Bondcast, a podcast series where we discuss our views on the latest themes and events shaping rates markets. I'm Imogen Bakra, Head of Non-Dollar Rate Strategy, and I'm joined today by our European Rate Specialist, Joanne Spadigam. All right, Imogen, let's start with you today. Um, so in the UK, there's been lots of central banks speak uh, in an otherwise quiet days a week. So did we learn anything new this week? Um, I guess in short, the answer is no. <laughs> um, we've heard from lots of central bank speakers, probably the highlight being uh, Bailey and others in front of the Treasury Select Committee. We've heard from Dingra, um, the leading dove on the committee, and we've also heard um, a couple of times from Megan Green. Um, the message I think that that we're really hearing from the centrist members of the MPC, you know, those those that voted for a hold and would have to switch their vote to for a cut in order for uh, policy to be eased, was that the data is tracking and trending in the right direction, but we still need to see more evidence of it. You know, I, I don't think that the message has changed at all. Um, from what we heard in in front of uh, at the MPC, sorry, at, at the press conference a couple of weeks ago, there was lots of excited headlines this week about Bailey saying that um, inflation didn't need to get back to two percent um, for the Bank of England to cut rates, um, which of course is exactly what he said at the press conference. So I'm a little bit confused why we all got so excited about it, uh, and of course it's exactly what Pill has said previously too, um, and others have also alluded to this fact that you know. Uh, rates are at such restrictive levels now that they can still be cut and policy will still be restrictive. So um, I think it's important not to kind of get too overexcited about any one thing that um, any of them say when it's no different to what we've been hearing over the last couple of weeks. Perhaps what was more interesting was the market reaction and that that kind of triggered um uh, you know, a somewhat sizable rally. And I think that that's probably still indicative of the fact that there is an appetite to be long front end, especially in the UK. You know, I think we've had a big washout in, with the market moves that we've had over the last couple of weeks in terms of positioning. Um, and although the market, the current profile of market pricing looks relatively hawkish compared to where we have been just a couple of weeks ago, I would suggest, I would say that maybe that, um, isn't necessarily indicative of what is actually underlying consensus um, and more just an indication of how positioning has had to shift over the last couple of weeks. Uh, and perhaps there's a little bit of dry powder still on the sidelines um, for investors that, that are still looking for opportunities to, to go long at the front end of the UK. Um, one final thing that I did think was semi-interesting, <laughs> I suppose, and maybe clutching at straws a little bit from this week's BOE speak, um, was just a comment by um, Swati Dingra, the BOE's leading dove, of course, the only um, MPC member to have voted for a cut. Um, and she has been a dovish dissenter on the MPC for uh, many meetings now. Um, but she was asked at her MI Connect webinar, you know, what she would be looking for in order to vote for 50 basis point cuts rather than 25. Um, and I thought it was interesting that, that she sort of, you know, didn't have a clear framework in the way that she would think she clearly hadn't thought about the possibility that they might need to cut in 50 bit increments yet. Um, of course, a lot can change between now and when we think the first cut might be, which is in August. And the longer that they keep rates at this higher level, um, perhaps the more likely it becomes that they have to cut in bigger increments. But it was an, an interesting message, I think, from from the leading dove that, you know, 50 basis points aren't really on her radar right now, which um, I think goes without saying that it's not on anybody else's either.
The other thing that markets are starting to look forward to now is the budget as well. Uh, and with headlines this week around the fiscal headroom there um, and potential for tax cuts. So what are your early thoughts on this? Yeah, I think the budget will definitely come back to in more detail next week when we finalise properly all of our numbers in terms of what we're expecting um, for fiscal policy announcements and what that means in terms of the guilt remit. Um, But I guess just my high level takeaway this week in terms of um, you know the narrative around how much headroom there will or won't be for tax cuts. From a markets perspective, it's almost somewhat irrelevant. You know, the more fiscal headroom that the OBR projects for the government, um, the more that they will recycle that into, you know, pre-election kind of fiscal giveaways. Um, and so, in terms of you know the issuance outlook, it, it really doesn't change all that much. If they have more headroom, they will just use up more of that. Um, into you know tax cuts or national insurance cuts, for example. Um, whereas if they don't, because um, you know they 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 can't find as enough in terms of spending cuts in future years, um, that then they won't. But but the issuance outlook is is broadly the same. You know, in all the different estimates of what headroom there is or there isn't, um, we're talking only a kind of couple billion different. Which when the kind of gross funding needs next year might be in the region of 270, 280 billion, um, a, a couple billion here or there, I don't think moves the needle in terms of the market reaction. Um, the you know the the message or the takeaway for markets is that we're still in a period of sustained and very high supply, um, uh, and this budget, I don't think there's going to be enough to to move the needle on that. Um, of course, this government will want to look fiscally responsive, um, so they won't use up all of whatever that available headroom is, but but they will use up the the vast majority of that. Um, in terms of how else it might influence the market, you know, I'll be watching two things. First of all, what that degree of fiscal easing is, because, of course, that will um, limit potentially the extent to which we may or may not see earlier bank rate cuts this year. Um, the um, easing that was announced in the autumn statement back in November is probably larger than what the government will have headroom to announce in in the next couple of weeks, we think. Um, And back then, the BOE judged that to have quite a small inflationary impact. So I don't think that this changes all that much for your kind of base case scenario with how you're thinking about the BOE. Um, And perhaps more interesting than more interesting than um, than the overall supply number, which we still expect to be very high, um, than the fiscal easing, which we expect some degree of, but not enough to move the needle for the BOE, um, is the skew of issuance and how that is, um, how the DMO shift their issuance kind of across the curve. I think it's broad consensus now that we see a, a shift shorter in duration of issuance. So they proportionally increase the shorts um, and proportionally decrease the longs and the linker buckets. Um, but I think that that's you know, broadly consensus now. I think some degree of the cross-market flattening that we've seen in the UK and the swap spread curve flattening as well um, has been related to this um, expectation or pricing in of the fact that we think the DMO will shift issuance shorter. And I would probably just caution against expecting too much of a shift because the overall um, you know, gross issuance number is likely to be so high that it's difficult for the DMO to be to be particularly kind of nuanced or nimble. And of course, it, even if they proportionally decrease longs and linkers of a very high number, that still results in 
you know, a, a high amount of issuance in kind of sterling billion um, nominal terms. So thinking about issuance again, I mean, we've also seen some headlines on that on the UK DM or potentially following in the footsteps of European governments as well, and making gilts more readily available to UK investors. So how does that change your view on the demand and supply imbalance we're seeing in the UK? Yeah, this has been a kind of recurring theme, I would say, over the last 18 months. Certainly, it feels like every uh, you know meeting that we go to, there's someone in the finance community that's asking me why more people aren't buying gilts given their kind of capital gains tax free. And you know, for a long time, we're yielding, well, still are, although off the highs, um, at very high yields, which was you know more competitive often than what was being offered in other savings and investment vehicles. Um, part of the reason, and and this has always been, you know, what I've kind of said in response to that is just that I think there are still quite high barriers to entry to retail investment in gilts. You know, it's not like what we see um, from Italy, for example, um, with specific retail bonds that are targeted at retail investors and easy for them to buy. It's not the same in the UK. You know, there is no specific retail guilt um and there are high barriers to entry you have to have a broker account you have to know what a guilt is and how to buy one etc etc and so although we have seen a very big pickup in retail demand for guilts that's been from a very low base and it still makes up i think a very small proportion of overall uh guilt demand um but one of you know the follow-on question has always been why don't the dmo make it easier um for retail investors you know why isn't there some kind of retail specific product um and this week they have seemingly made the first step towards doing that by um allowing uh, retail investors to participate in primary auctions, so in supply events, rather than just being able to buy them um, on the secondary market. So they've kind of taken one step towards becoming a bit more retail friendly, if you like, and, and being able to rely more heavily on diversified sources of funding, um, which, of course, in a year when, you know, we again, we have very high high funding needs um, is a step in the right direction, but I'm not sure it moves the needle in terms of the way in which you think about the supply demand imbalance for the DMO, um, in part because it doesn't remove any of the barriers to entry that already exists for retail buying gilts. You know, you still have to have a broker account. You still have to know what a gilt is and that the capital gains tax free and it's, you know, could be an attractive um, investment vehicle for some. Um, and and just being able to participate in auctions, you know, doesn't remove any of those barriers to entry. And if anything, I would argue that actually is a more complicated investments or savings product for a, a retail investor. But also because part of the reason why we've seen a big pickup in retail demand for gilts is because of the capital gains tax-free advantage. So we've seen lots of retail buying of um, low coupon bonds um, and to to take advantage of of that um, tax initiative. But any new supply that's coming to the market, um, of course, is likely to be high coupon. And therefore, for those retail investors that are looking to take advantage of um, the capital gains tax-free treatment of gilts, um, they don't offer that. Um, of course, the logical next question could be, you know, what's next? Could the DMO issue some form of retail bond that's a bit more readily available, a bit more accessible, um, given that there's still a huge amount of cash sitting on um, bank balance sheets that that they could tap into? Um, to which I think the answer is probably it's quite unlikely in the near term. 
For a start, I think it's not necessarily any cheaper for the Treasury. You know, when they issued that NSNI bond last year, the yield was 6% compared to a 10-year gold currently, for example, which is only around 4%. Um, you know, potentially risks being labelled a regressive policy as well, in the sense that if you're looking for, you know, if you've maxed out all of your existing kind of tax-free savings vehicles and are looking for another way of, of efficiently managing money, um, you're probably in the... Um, you know, very high percentage in terms of income and wealth distribution um, and drawing households out of or household cash, I should say, out of interest bearing um, savings accounts also has tax implications if that cash is then put into um, tax free vehicles. Um, and finally, I think from a, you know, a crowding out perspective, it also risks um, crowding out cash that, that would otherwise be put in in um, bank deposits. But from a market's perspective, it has implications too, in the sense that I think both NSNI um, and retail bond issuance would likely be viewed as quite short-term um, funding sources, a bit like bills, so they could eventually need to be termed out anyway. Um, and therefore, on the surface, although it kind of nominally solves or helps to solve the the DMO supply demand imbalance, it doesn't necessarily help to solve the duration mismatch with nearly all of the kind of retail bond demand being very focused at the front end of the curve. Uh, and of course, the DMO being committed to, to a certain extent, issuing across the curve, although, you know, we expect small tweaks to that in the remit, as we discussed before. Uh, anyway, that's probably enough on what was supposed to be a quiet week in the UK. Uh, so let's switch over to Europe, where it was a quiet week too, but we have had the PMIs um, and we have had the minutes from the ECB meeting last month. Um, what's your takeaway from both of those, Joanne? So I actually think there are a couple of interesting things in the ECB minutes. I think uh, one of the things that we really got was this confirmation that perhaps the ECB wasn't too happy with what the market was pricing in, at least for March. Um, in January, which I think really spoke to that hawkish pushback we had before the meeting. And then perhaps after after market pricing had adjusted, they were a bit more comfortable going to the meeting, which which meant that we had a bit more of a dovish meeting than expected. And I think the ministry did confirm that that was the intention of the ECB to some extent to push against the market pricing. And I think um, that's interesting to know uh, in hindsight. The other thing that I thought was um, a, a key takeaway was in, the ter in terms of how they're playing the balance of risks in terms of cutting rates um, early versus cutting rates late, because of course there's a risk that if you cut rates too late that actually um, growth is impacted and there's a risk that if you cut rates too early that maybe the inflationary picture isn't as um, uh, isn't easy as, as gradually you expected. So there's a risk that you have to hike again in the future. And it does seem like the way in which the minutes were, were written suggested that actually the risk that the ECB is more concerned about is that they cut too quickly. Um, so whilst the data in our head might indicate that even by April that we, they could cut rates and that actually the wage negotiation data starts to come out a, a bit earlier, like the, 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 um, not the final amount uh, or the final number, but the individual negotiation starts to become more um, known and understood. Um, we think even with the, those risks and with the idea that, that actually the data is is moving in line with the idea that they could cut earlier. We think given that what they've said, they are more risk of us cutting early versus cutting late. And to some extent, the easing in financial conditions as well has helped them along in that process so that they can leave rates higher for longer um, at this stage and financial conditions have already loosened a little bit. Um, 
I think the other thing was, of course, the PMIs, which was the key data for this week for the euro area. The euro area print in general was higher than expected, uh, and that was really supported by the services sector. But I think what was also interesting to note was that there was a bit of a deviation, for example, in France and Germany's prints, where German manufacturing uh, is really not doing very well, um, and where France, we kind of saw a more broad-based improvement both in services and manufacturing. Uh, so, I mean, German growth numbers as well were revised lower by the German government. So I think the picture for Germany, German's growth, Germany's growth over this year really is not very pretty. Um, but we do think that the PMIs, as in general, have shown a bit of a bottoming out. So really the path for growth over this year should be one um, that is better than, next, better than the last year. And... Since we talked so much, or I talked so much about uh, retail issuance, uh, perhaps we can just quickly talk about the BTP Valore, the Italian Treasury's retail, um, I was about to say guilt, not guilt, <laughs> retail BTP offering um, next week. Of course, the Italian Treasury, I think more than any other Treasury in the Euro area of, amongst European governments, was able to tap in very successfully to retail demand last year. Um, do you expect it? A similar picture this year? So we expect a fairly similar picture this year in terms of Italy being able to raise um, a very similar amount or even more from the retail side for this year. So we think going into next week we've obviously seen BTP Valore over the last year where they've seen around 17 to 18 billion in issuance. So our base case going into next week will be that a similar number comes out comes out of it. Um, I mean, I think there's still a fairly large amount of cash available in, in household deposits for um, to really tap into this BTB Valore instrument. And of course, there are tax savings in Italy from, from actually buying government debt. Um, so that both of those things act as a positive. Right? Of course, the, the yield, that which it comes in, will also, will also matter. Um, what's also interesting is that we're seeing some of these headlines around the EU potentially also having a retail issuance and a retail bond. Um, it's, it's fairly interesting because some of the sources, pieces have suggested that maybe Italy is less supportive of this idea, given that that's in competition with their own BTP Valore, which is obviously very um, useful. But it's interesting to see that um, this question about retail demand is picking up even within the euro area um, as well. It seems only sensible that everybody is kind of looking at alternative sources or at least being able to diversify that, that funding base a little bit um, away from the market. OK, all right, that's probably enough this week. Let's catch up next week. Uh, we can talk about the UK budget in a little bit more detail uh, and anything else that crops up between now and then. Thank you for joining me. Thank you to our listeners for listening in. And just a reminder, if you liked today's episode, please don't forget to hit the like button and click subscribe so you can get the latest episodes as soon as they're available. Thanks. See you next week.